we're going to read the most important single verse in the Bible. And I'm going to be expounding today for uh, our benefit as we look at God's Word from what may just be the most three most important chapters in the Bible. And along about 6 o'clock this afternoon, we'll finish this up. <laughs> And um, we'll take a look at it. But we began with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the most important verse in the Bible. I will defend my statement in just a moment. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, I'm reading from the cataract version of the Bible. Somebody asked me why I carry such a large Bible. Isn't that hard? At 80, it is hard to carry anything. And so, yes, it's difficult, but I'd rather have the difficulty of carrying it and be able to at least read it in part than not to be able to read it at all. So thank you for bearing with the, the large Bible this morning. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the most important verse in the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, hold your place because we're going to read a little bit from chapter 2 and a little from chapter 3 before it's over. But let's begin right there. Uh, Patterson, why would you say that that's the most important verse in the Bible? Have you forgotten about John 3.16? No, I didn't forget about John 3.16. But you see, John 3.16 doesn't mean anything helpful if Genesis 1.1 isn't true. If it is not true that God created the heavens and the earth, in fact, everything that follows in your Bible is of little enough consequence. It is no more than theological inquiry at very best. At worst, it is nothing but Hebrew uh, uh, tradition. And so the verse becomes strategically important. If it is not true, that God created the heavens and the earth. Students, you are wasting your time to be here today. You are not only wasting your time to be here today, you are frivolously, well, frittering away your time to be in school at all. If God did not create the heavens and the earth, you are part of the grand lie that is ever told to the human family. You are part of perpetuation of a mythology that cannot be supported if God did not create the heavens and the earth. However, if it is true, as the Bible puts it in that very first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth, then this world is a world that belongs to God. And it follows that the only thing that really matters in this life is to be sure that we get things right according to God. 
and that we come to know him whom to know is to have life forever. And so that verse is strategically important. As a matter of fact, I heard a man say recently that if you have any question ultimately about anything in life, read the first 11 chapters of Genesis. There is much truth in that because the fact of the matter is that the first 11 chapters of Genesis tells us what happened, why it happened, and what it is that we're supposed to do about it. And I ask you, can you find anything more important, more strategic, more frontline than that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that statement is true, you are not only not wasting your time, you're among the most intelligent people in the earth simply because you have decided that the most important thing in life is to know God and understand His purpose. And if you have made that decision, you are a wise man or a wise woman indeed. Most important verse in the Bible. Everything that follows it magnifies that verse. Everything that follows it is a footnote on what that verse means. From the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, I wish we had time to develop it, but we don't. So would you look at beginning in verse uh, 18 of chapter 2? Because we want to find out what it was that God did about people. So the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. In the Hebrew text, it says, Lotov. That means under no circumstances is it good for you men that are here to be alone. Not only is it not good for you to be alone, he could have said it is downright dangerous for you to be alone. As a matter of fact, he could have expounded a little further on that and said it's not safe for anybody for you to be alone. And so God said, I'm not going to leave him alone. You see, Adam had just finished the process of naming every animal. In the first Ringland Brothers Barnum and Bailey parade ever, God brought every animal by and said to Adam, I want you to name them. And so here comes a pachyderm. And here comes a rhinoceros, and here comes a hippopotamus, a river horse. He knew what to name him. He was a horse, uh, quite a horse that stayed in the river all the time. So he's a hippopotamus, a, a river horse. And, and so, and he named one antelope after another until Adam said, Dear God in heaven, how many of those critters did you make anyway? And and Lord said, I made a bunch of them. And if you'll notice, Adam, the horns on every antelope are distinctive. 
Everyone has different horns. Just to show you my creative genius, you won't find two different kinds of antelope that have the same kind of horns. They're all different. And not only that, but I have created an infinite kind of, uh, of creatures. Why, there comes a black mamba crawling along the ground. And at that stage in life, black mambas were friendly. If you see a black mamba today, it will increase your speed till you'll be an Olympic runner if you have any sense at all. And so the black mamba was no problem, but there comes a crocodile. And Adam named every one of the animals, and the Bible says whatever it was stuck, it stayed the name that he called it, and that was that. But for Adam, there was not found an eight ser connecto in Hebrew, a one corresponding to him. So that's exactly what happened. It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make an eight ser connecto there, a helper exactly corresponding to him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Yeah, there goes a yeah, skunk. Uh, yeah, okay, and whatever he called him, and Adam called every living creature, that was its name, and Adam gave names to all the cattle and to uh, the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. Oh, no. But for Adam, there was not found an eight-sayer connecto a helper corresponding to him. Yeah. Time out, Lord. Were you thinking that what Adam would do might be to take up with a female orangutan? Is that what you were doing? No, of course not. But God did know that after Adam got through observing that every animal had an eight-ser connecto, he was going to be feeling lonelier than ever. And that's exactly what happened. Adam is alone in the world. Everything else has its own eight-ser connecto, a helper, corresponding to it. Now, it's an amazing thing to see. There is an antelope, the male of which is distinct and beautiful. It is God's most beautiful antelope, in fact. And the first time they ever pointed out to me and said, there goes the female, I said, how did a male ever find her? She doesn't look anything like him. And, oh my goodness, somehow he knew that was his female. And so they got together and they made little ones. And so it was a wonderful thing that God did. But for Adam, no, no, it's their connecto. Well, God, what are you going to do? Well... The Lord God is going to have 
the first case of surgery. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. I love it when I get around physicians who are involved in anesthesiology, putting people to sleep. I always say, isn't that interesting? We're in the same work, you know. And they say, oh, are you an anesthesiologist? And I say, well, sort of, uh, except that... Uh, Mine doesn't have any bad after effects that I know of, um, but I generally put people to sleep. And so, and so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And what he did, he took one of his ribs, the King James Version says. That's a very unfortunate translation there because it's the Hebrew word selah. Selah means a part of his side. We don't know whether he took one rib, two ribs, three ribs, or no ribs. We, for that matter, we don't know exactly what he took, but he took a part of his, uh, of his side. And from that side, he made the woman. Now, ladies, I want you to take special notice of that expression. Then the Selah, which the Lord God had taken the man, with that he made a woman. You're going to like that word. That's the Hebrew word, vayabin. And uh, it has a very special connotation. It means to artistically build or to construct. Hey, and I, you know, I didn't need to learn to read Hebrew to figure that out. I just came by that naturally. But the fact of the matter is, that's what God says. Now, you men, I'm sorry to have to tell you, he just barad all of you. That's just the word barad. It means he's just you know, on his way to lunch. He made you <laughs> and, uh, and stuck you out there. But no, he took some special pains when he made the woman. And so he specially constructed and beautifully constructed the woman and he brought her unto the man and Adam had something to say about that. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So she shall be called Isha, the Hebrew word, and that's very much like the Hebrew word for man, which is Ish. And as man is Ish, woman is Isha, because she was taken out of the man. What a fabulously perceptive and insightful statement. Look at that for just a minute, will you? And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Whatever it is that I am, there's another one. Another one of exactly the same kind. That's what God said he was going to do. An aidser connecto. A helper of the same kind. So all the discussions go on. Are men superior to women? No. Not if I'm following the first three chapters of the Bible, they're not. Now, that does not mean that the man is not the decided and stated leader of the household. But it doesn't make him a king 
a potentate, a dictator who's able to say, come and you got to come and go and you got to go if you're the Aetzer Connecto. No, I don't mean that at all. But it does make it crystal clear that while he is the decided spiritual leader of the home, he is the one who, when he stands before the judgment seat of Christ someday, is going to give account not only for himself, but also for his Aetzer Connecto. Gentlemen, you better not forget it. You'll be responsible for yourself and for your wife. Oh, and you want to have 12 children because they're cheaper by the dozen? Well, that's good. That's fine. That's okay. Just know you'll be a long time at the judgment bar of God because you got to account for every one of them also. Oh, and did I mention the grandkids to come? Oh, yeah, you'll be responsible for those too because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, you fathers and you grandfathers, you listen up, you have responsibilities before God. And so, yes, you have that responsibility and the Aetzer Connecto and she is bone of your bones and flesh of your flesh. So whatever it is you are, she is also. And men and women are equal in their responsibilities to God, in their accountabilities to God. And they are equally important. Their lives both count for God in the same way. And yet, in the economy of God, the husband is the responsible leader of the wife and the family. That is God's way, plainly set forth in Genesis chapters 1 to 11. Therefore, he concludes, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife or shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall become one flesh. Now look at that for a moment. That too is a most remarkable insight. What, may I ask you, did Adam know about mothers and father? Did you ever stop to think about that? He didn't know anything about that. He was not the child of a human mother and father, but was a special, miraculous creation of God. He had not yet fathered children, so he was not the father of any children. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. What on earth did Adam know about fathers and mothers? You see, we're talking about special revelation here. We're talking about an act of God whereby he revealed at the very outset to our first parents that which they needed to know in order successfully to live. 
And that's exactly what God has done in the whole Bible. He has revealed to us the information that we need to store carefully in our minds and our hearts that we might not sin against God. We don't read and study the Bible in order to become scholars in it, though hopefully you will develop a level of scholarship while you're here. That's not why you read and study the Bible. You read and study the Bible to hide its words deeply within your heart so that you know how to choose and so that you know how to do and so that you know how to act and how to react and how to respond. And so... When things happen to you in life which are unfortunate and when people misunderstand you and misrepresent you and when all kinds of bad things happen to you, instead of growing bitter, as is the case with most of the world, and instead of determining to get even and file a lawsuit and do this and do that and do the other to supposedly write the record, your Bible tells you You are to love and find a way to forgive because that's what God did for you in Christ. He forgave you of your sin. And so God's people, Christian people, followers of Christ are to be notorious forgivers. They are to forgive one another and overlook the sin and anticipate the restoration of all men. All that's in the Bible, and it's there so that we can hide its words in our heart and not sin against God. Well, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. This is God's invitation for a wedding ceremony. Now, all of you have been to weddings, and you know there are a lot of interesting things about weddings in this country. And as a matter of fact, I've traveled pretty much throughout the whole world. I've been in 148 countries. There are only 196. And so I've been in most of them. I've been on all seven continents now. And I'm not sure the penguins do this in Antarctica, but every place else we go, we find that weddings are about the same. And, of course, in our weddings, we send the preacher out dressed all up in a tuxedo and everything, and he stands here, and nobody pays any attention at all. The groom comes in, and he stands right here. And uh, handsome fellow that he is there in his tuxedo, everybody just glances at him, and they pay no further attention to him whatsoever. And then if it's a big wedding, he has a number of groomsmen, And they're all stationed out at appropriate intervals there. And then the organ plays a little louder. And down the aisle comes the maid of honor or the matron of honor and the bridesmaids. And they all line up out there. And then crescendo on the organ. And everybody stands up and turns around and looks because here comes the bride. And she comes down beautifully arraigned on the arm of her father. And they walk down there to the front. And the preacher looks at him and he says, Who gives this woman in marriage? Now, if he can remember 
what it is that he's supposed to say. The father says, I do. Or if he really wants to get creative, he may say, her mother and I. That's fine. You're out, bud. Go on back and sit down with your woman over there. You're in, fella. Turn around here and step up next to your bride. And they do that. What's going on? It's a ceremony called leaving father and mother. You see, leaving doesn't mean you forsake them. It doesn't mean you don't have anything to do with them anymore. As a matter of fact, you know how this works when you're born and you're a little baby and a child. Mom and dad take care of you and man, they get you up to maturity and finally you live long enough and then you're taking care of mom and dad when they get to be 80 like I am, you know. They start trying to hide my car keys. They say, you can't drive anymore because he can't see. And we better get rid of those car keys, you know. And, and uh, man, they're taking care of you, you know. It's like you become the baby. And so your kids are taking care of you. That's the way it happens. But the fact of the matter is, there has to come a time when you do leave mom and dad because up till that moment, the major responsibility you have had as a child is to obey mom and dad. To be a child of obedience, love, and honor to your parents. Now, some of you haven't done that, and if you haven't done that, you have a journey yet to make to go back to mom and dad, correct all that, ask for their forgiveness, and Make it right. But then there comes the day when you have to declare a new first loyalty. And you realize that the marriage ceremony is not an accident. Oh, there are little things about it that are incidental to each culture. That's true. But 148 nations, and I hadn't been in a nation yet, where some facsimile of this is not in fact practiced. And it always happens because there is always a moment when a child says, there's a new first loyalty in my life. Until now, it's been mom and dad. But as of today, I'm making him my new first loyalty. And he's saying, until now, mom and dad. But now I'm making her my new first loyalty. That's the reason why this is not just something we do sociologically. This is something we're doing theologically. We're making a statement about what God is doing in joining two people together. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, not forget them, not forsake them. You continue to have great responsibilities. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and that's the spiritual union that takes place, and they too shall become one flesh. How does that happen? Well, you have to get somebody else to talk to you about that, but I can tell you this much about it. It's a very pleasurable endeavor. They too 
become one flesh, they actually act out the spiritual union. May I shock you today and tell you that the physical union of a husband and wife together is a spiritual experience. It is a godly theological statement. Now, I don't mean by that that somewhere in the process of it you need to sing together just as I am. I'm not talking about that. There, there are ways to have a spiritual experience that don't include singing just as I am. But the point is that as God intended it to be, it is a theological and spiritual statement of great consequence. That's the reason why God built rules around it, around artificial expressions of it outside of marriage, and why God calls it adultery and fornication and says no to it. As a matter of fact, why? In many cases of adultery, for example, it was serious enough that it was due execution as a response. How serious that is. That is a serious, holy, spiritual expression. When they two act out their spiritual union. Now, by the way, notice the direction of that. There is, first of all, a public statement of new commitment to husband or wife. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. And then there is a spiritual union. They have become one together. And so there is a spiritual union here. And then and only then do they two become one flesh and act out the physical union. You say, I didn't do it that way. I did it wrong. Well, in just a minute, we're going to find out God has a remedy for that. It doesn't mean you're finished. It doesn't mean that your marriage has necessarily had it. It doesn't mean that at all. God's in the forgiveness business. Remember, I mentioned that a while ago. And I'm going to show it to you again in just a moment in God's Word. And so God is in the business of forgiving and restoring, and He will certainly do that. But I am going to say to you that if you've not yet done this, do it God's way. When you do things God's way, guess what happens? You get the blessing of God. And why not do it the way God blesses? When you do it the way God blesses, it'll be an experience when you come to that last part. They too shall become one flesh. It'll be an experience you never forget. God wants to bless that. You mean God's interested in that? God's interested in everything you do. You bet he's interested in that. And he will bless it. Why not do it in a way? that God is going to bless it, all right? So, for this cause, 
A man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. And then comes that famous verse in the Bible that you've heard so many sermons on before. <clears throat> and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Uh, skip it on and run it on real quickly. I'm not actually going to skip it but I am for the moment. We come to chapter 3. In chapter 3, we have an account of a rebellion man doing that which God told him not to do, eating the tree of life, and God's judgment on him, on the serpent, on Eve, and on Adam. And in that third chapter, we finally come down to verses 10, 20 and 21. And that's where we're going to close today. And i got to close quickly, but I want you to look at those real quickly. And Adam called his wife's name Eve. Why? Because God solves the racial problem once and for all right here. Because she is the mother of all living. That means there is only one race. There are many, many ethnicities. We grew up in all kinds of ways all over the world. But folks, it is just one family. Eve is the mother of all living. And like the man said, if you want to solve all the problems and answer all the questions of the world, read the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's all there. And there's the resolution of the racial problem forever. There is no racial problem. There's just one race. And Eve is the mother of all living. Get the next verse and we're through. Also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothe them. I want you to think about it a minute. Why is it that Adam and Eve and everybody since has felt the necessity of clothing what we refer to ceremoniously as the unspoken parts of the body, of the human body. For example, the knee is the ugliest part of the human anatomy. Have you ever noticed that? Why in the world girls insist a lot of times, and if I hit you today, you just forgive me, but I'm going to hit you. Um, why on earth girls insist on wearing skirts higher than their knees and exposing the ugliest part of their anatomy, I have never, ever understood. That is so strange. I mean, you know, it really is. Well, if I went around with my pants legs up there and exposed my knees, everybody would say, he's crazy. That's the ugly part of his anatomy. Yeah, well, it, it is. So wonder why they didn't take the fig leaves. And by the way, there's no mention of an apple anywhere in the first three chapters of Genesis. The only mention of any fruit particular is fig. And so 
They took fig leaves and made aprons for themselves and covered those parts of the anatomy which bring about creation. And uh, back to that in just a moment, though, but why didn't they cover their knees? Looks like the logical thing to do. Or consider that when you begin to get old like I do, it's absolutely inevitable. Look at this. <laughs> Hair fell out on my head. But uh, don't worry about it. It's no big thing. Your hair grows faster than ever in your nose and ears. <laughs> and you spend half of your life in front of the sink, you know, chopping out all the hair so you won't look like the, uh, uh, some kind of a, uh, ape uh, coming after people. You spend half your time doing that, you, you know. So why wouldn't you put a fig leaf there? Or did you know this? Did you know that the older you get, the more your earlobes grow? They grow larger and larger and larger. I think that may be utilitarian because uh, when you get to be my age, you can't hear in one ear, but you're deaf in the other one. And, and so your earlobes get larger so they can catch every possible sound bite out there and pick it up and communicate it, but it's sure not particularly attractive. You know, a guy comes in, and he's 100, and his ears are 100 inches long. And, and uh, so it, they grow, and they grow, and they grow. So why not put the fig leaves over their ears? Why did they put the fig leaves where they put them? May I answer that for you? Because... One day, a little bit later in the text, Adam and Eve stumble across the bloody, budgeoned body of their son who has been killed by his own brother and they can't say, where did our son go that did this horrible thing? He should die for this. They can't say that. All they can say is look what we have done. You see, God gave them the ability to procreate. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Did you ever stop to think about it? You and your wife together are blessed of God with the ability to create with the hand of God Another human being who will live forever someplace. <laughs> He'll live forever. She'll live forever someplace. You can do it. And that is an amazing act of God in the first chapters of Genesis whereby he gives you the ability to enter into the very process that he himself did alone at first when he made Adam and made Eve. And now you get to be a part of making a human being. My goodness. But unfortunately, they sinned. And they passed on to the whole human race a memory of their rebellion against God. 
And Adam and Eve became desperately ashamed of the procreative organs of which they should have been duly happy. Now they're ashamed of them and they hide them. You know, when you look at art, great art, if you ever watch pictures of Jesus and traveling the world around almost every place I've been, you'll find pictures of Jesus on the cross. And inevitably, the artists paint him with a loincloth. And they should. That's the appropriate way to paint him. But in case you don't know, you need to know that wasn't how he was crucified. When Rome crucified its prisoners, the idea was to humiliate them in every way they could. And they crucified them naked so that people could walk by and see and laugh and determine that will never be I. Can you imagine it? Jesus Christ, the sinless one, crucified naked on a Roman cross for the world to pass by and gawk. Remember that. He died that way on the cross for you and for me. And so God knows that Adam and Eve must be clothed. And so we have the first instance of a sacrifice. God takes probably an antelope of some kind, and that beautiful, gorgeous creation of God loses its life so that Adam and Eve could be clothed. And God, from the hide of that animal that has lost its life, prefiguring Christ and his death on the cross, clothes Adam and Eve as we must all be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And that's the reason the atonement is necessary. The atonement's not just a doctrine we preach. It's the reason why we must be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And what happens in a salvation experience is that we bring him all of our self-righteous rags and we accept from Jesus his clothing of righteousness which we wear into the presence of God.
Would you bow with me? Look, I know most of us here have trusted Christ, but I also know that any time a group is gathered together, it may well be that there's somebody there who has not done so. Has there been a moment when you received the Lord Jesus as your Savior? I don't mean when you joined a church. I don't mean when you said the right things, when you were baptized. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about has there been a moment when you heartfelt, knelt before God and prayed in effect, Lord, here is my self-righteousness. Would you clothe me with the righteousness of Christ? If you would like to do that right this moment, you've never done that, nobody looking but just the visiting preacher, would you just slip your hand up in the air for a moment? I'm trusting Jesus today. Anybody like that? Heavenly Father, how we thank you today for this most important introduction to all that there is to know about God and his ways. And Father, may we stay so close to this story. We read it again and again and again and apply it again and again and again to our hearts until it becomes a part of every waking moment. Thank you for these students and the future that our world has through their witness. Thank you for the wonderful professors of this school that teach us the Word of God. Thank you for its president and bless them all together. In Jesus' holy name, I pray. Amen.